in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And to get us started as we, as we think about this passage again this morning, um, I want to start kind of on a down note and tell you a story about a church nightmare. Not this church, thankfully. I, I was one of the leaders of that other church, though, and we had made a decision that was not popular with the congregation. I wasn't totally happy with the timing or the the details of the decision, but I generally agreed that it was the right decision. Well, when I say the decision was not popular with the congregation, that was an understatement, at least for a decent-sized group within the congregation. First came the angry letters and emails, some which included personal attacks of and accusations, some of which were not even true. Along with this was the gossip and the criticism behind our backs. It was hurtful enough to have people saying stuff about me, but I think it hurt me at least as much that they were saying nasty things about other leaders I respected and cared for. Then there was the leader who added fuel to the fire by coming to leadership meetings and generally agreeing with what was said, so we thought, but then going home and sharing and criticizing to others what that leader said the leadership group had said or decided. At one point, all of this got a few people so stirred up that one of them literally backed me into a corner and yelled in my face one Sunday morning, and a couple leaders came over to make sure I wouldn't be physically hurt. By the time it all ended, two church leaders that I most respected and appreciated in the church and who had done the most, in my opinion, to lead the church in a positive, healthy, and effective direction had been voted out of office by the congregation. And most of the other leaders of the church resigned in protest. And I sat there in that moment stunned, feeling like everything I'd worked for and dreamed about and sacrificed for as a church had just all gone up in flames. Not only was I stunned and hurt and exhausted, but I was angry. (laughs) Maybe the most angry I'd ever been. Angry particularly at a few people who I felt had led the trouble and had uh, caused most of the damage. From my perspective, they had destroyed God's work. They had stood in the way of what God had been doing. They had hurt God's people. And I had all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of ideas, many of them not very pretty, about what should happen to these people. And I go to Jesus in prayer at that time with with all of these thoughts and with these emotions. And I go thinking, I'm working for Jesus here. I'm representing Jesus. I'm just trying to do the best I can to further his kingdom. And these people are ruining it all. And what should be done to these people, I'm wondering, as I'm trying to figure out how to pray for them or about them. (laughs) And how does Jesus answer? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Have you, like me, ever felt like this is an impossible command? (laughs) I did at that time in that moment, though with time, Jesus has given me much more of his heart, even for those people. Of course, Jesus is the one great preacher who always practices what he preaches, right? 
What did he say from the cross, even while his enemies were torturing him in the most degrading and excruciating ways? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Love your enemies. Pray for those who are persecuting you. Dave Deal reminded us last Sunday when he preached on this passage that it's tempting to point out that Jesus doesn't say we have to like our enemies. He just says we have to love them. And there's truth there. Jesus calls us to treat our enemies well, even if we don't feel like treating them well. But I don't think what Jesus is asking of us here is for us to stoically and cold-heartedly do the right thing even though we don't want to and there's hatred in our hearts. And I don't think that's what David was suggesting that we do. So I want to add this to, to, uh, to what he said last Sunday. And that is that we should love our enemies until we can find it in our hearts to start to like them. Or at least until we feel some sort of softness and compassion toward them in our hearts, even if we never really like them. Because true love can't just be cold and mechanical obedience. It, it has to grow to involve our heart, too. Well, boy, this is a tall order. I mean, it's hard enough to love our neighbors. It's hard enough to love the people we like. <laughs> because liking them just means we're attracted to them, we enjoy them. But love requires that we seek what's best for them, that we sacrifice for them, that we put their interests before our own. I don't know about you, but, but that's sometimes hard for me, even with those I like a lot. And, and so if I struggle to truly love those I like, what a struggle to love my enemies. And so, I need a new heart. I need Jesus' heart. And that is what Jesus, in this passage, is letting me know that he wants to give me. And you. Because Jesus never makes unfunded mandates. He never asks us to do things without also being willing to empower us and to equip us to actually do them. As somebody prayed earlier. And so bit by bit, Jesus is giving me a new heart, a loving heart. That's what he promises to do in other places in the scripture. And and so Um, What Jesus is doing in today's passage is is this. He's he's taking our heart and he's he's pushing on it and he's pulling on it and he's stretching it and he's saying, I want this heart to get bigger. (laughs) Great that you love those who love you, but even the tax collectors do that. Wonderful that you greet your own people But even the Gentiles do that. I want to expand your love. I want to grow your love until it's big enough even for your enemies. Even to include those who persecute you. Because that's how big God's heart is. And you are God's children. And God wants to give you his heart. And to make your heart a lot more.
And so with that, we come to the end of the first section of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. There's more to come, trust me. (laughs) But this is the end of the first major point Jesus makes in the sermon. And it ends with, with a soaring crescendo. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And with this ending, Jesus is circling around and reinforcing what he told us back when he gave us the sermon's thesis statement, his, his key biblical truth, to use the language we use often at CBC. Remember, Jesus said near the beginning of the sermon, I, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as Dave told us last week, this, this Greek word, teleos, which is behind the English word perfect, it doesn't mean faultless. It doesn't mean never making a mistake. It doesn't mean we're flawless. It, it rather means that we're whole and that we're complete and that we're mature. I, I've used the illustration before of, of a professional athlete as embodying this. It's it's not that professional athletes never make mistakes, right? It's rather that they've reached the top of their game. They're they're the best of the best. They've arrived at maturity in their field. They're the complete package when it comes to their sport. That's what this word teleos means. It means mature, complete, not partway, but all the way. Sure, people who are teleos mess up. But their hearts have expanded. Their love has expanded all the way to where they can love even their enemies. And when they can do that, Jesus says, they are like God. They are sons and daughters of God. Because God loves his enemies. How does Jesus put it? God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, giving them both uh, both the evil and the good, giving them warmth and light and joy. God sends his reign on the righteous and on the unrighteous, providing both kinds of people with irrigated soil so they can grow their crops and enjoy their food, the bounty of the harvest. Jesus, of course, is talking to farmers back then. Today, he might say, God provides career advancements for the good and for the bad. God causes the investment portfolios to increase of both the wicked and the godly. Can you believe it? People do terrible things. They do horrendous things. And God goes on day after day supplying a good, hospitable world and economy in which they can flourish. Some have taken offense that that God does this and called God the great enabler. God enables bad people to do bad things. God lets them live. God lets them flourish in God's world. You see, God doesn't subscribe to this guilty by association idea that some religious people have. I've known churches that would say, we we shouldn't rent our building to anyone who's not a Christian because what if they do something immoral in our building? And and I've known individuals who would say, well, we shouldn't rent our house or a facility to to people who are living in sin. After all, we'd be enabling them. And, And so we'd somehow be guilty by association. 
And yet God goes on loving his enemies, showering down rain and sunshine on them, allowing them to enjoy God's good earth, God's creation. What a big heart God has. Doing good to his enemies. Jesus says, I want you to be children of a God who's like that. I want you to learn to to love and to pray for not just those you like and and not just also those who do wrong, but, but even those who have done wrong to you, even to your enemies, even to those who have persecuted you. I love what commentator Dale Bruner has to say about this. He says, when we love our enemies, we become the closest people to God. When we love our enemies, we become the closest people to God. God's own sons and daughters. You want to know God? You want to get close to God? When you begin to love your enemies, you will be close to God. You'll understand God's heart and you'll know that God understands yours in ways that until then you could only dream about. You know, when I was so hurt and so angry at what happened at that other church, that was a moment where the door was open to me in a unique way to be closer to God than I ever had been before. If I'd stayed angry, if I'd stayed bitter, if, I, if I'd refused to forgive, if I just judged them in my heart and, and justified it all piously, well, look what they did. They destroyed God's work. God must be so mad at them, and I am too. If I'd stayed there in that place and, and felt self-righteous and self-justified, then the door would have closed on my opportunity to get closer to God. In fact, had I made that choice, I would have chosen to move farther away from God. But in choosing to let God perform heart surgery on me, ouch, painful, right? (laughs) But but to slowly let my heart be stretched and and opened up so I could come to the place of, of forgiving and even loving these people, in that process, I came to know God more deeply. So, God, this is what it felt like to hang on the cross, a little bit anyway. To to have people oppose you, to have people destroy your work, and to talk bad about you, and and yet you love them. You could see something else in them besides their evil. You said, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Oh man, God, I think I'm sharing a bit in the fellowship of your sufferings here. I feel closer to you, God, in my pain, in in my hurt. And yet, truth be told, God, I guess I've hurt you too at times. I've hurt other people and, and you've had to forgive me. Maybe I'm not that different or as different from my enemies as I think I am. And yet you love us all. Love your enemies, Jesus says, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, the closest people to God's heart. Well, going back again to the beginning, 
of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said to his followers, we're the light of the world. We're the, the salt of the earth. Light and darkness. Salt in the midst of decay and rot and blandness. Different, distinct, a countercultural community, right? Remember that? That's what we're supposed to be, Jesus said. And, and so, so question. If we're supposed to be a countercultural community. When the world looks at evangelical Christians today, what do they see? What's different about us? What's countercultural about us as a community? Is it that we're against gay marriage and against abortion? That we want prayer back in schools even if people don't believe in the God that we're praying to? Is it that we voted for Trump? Is it that we tell people that they're wrong? That's the reputation we have, right? Whether we've, we rightly deserve it or not. It's what our actions, our, our political and our social activism has got us pegged for in the broader culture. And so let's line up that reputation against Jesus' vision in the Sermon on the Mount for how we're to be countercultural. Re- remember again, what, what's Jesus' vision? It's that, that we don't stay angry or speak harshly or abusively. It's that we're quick to reconcile with those we have conflict with. It's that we respect women and we get a grip on our lust. It's that we're faithful to our marriages. It's that we're honest, dependable, and true to our word. It's that we turn the other cheek when people take advantage of us or hurt us and we give generously and open-handedly. Finally, it's that we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. That's what a countercultural community is supposed to look like according to Jesus. That's what it means to be salt and light. These are the good deeds that are, as Jesus said, supposed to shine in the world and cause people to glorify God. So how are we as Jesus' followers doing? Well, we can't change the whole evangelical culture, but... But we may not always be able to equate how evangelicals behave or what they stand for with what it means to us to follow Jesus. And we're responsible for ourselves as individuals and as a local church. You know, as we, as we face this challenge to, to love our enemies, I, I think there's great power in what Jesus says in verse 44. When he says, pray for those who persecute you. And both pray and you are in the plural. You, plural, pray for those who persecute you. Again, plural. Which suggests that one of the things we should pray for when we gather together as God's people is for those who persecute us. And certainly we should pray for them as individuals as well. Uh, Us as individuals should pray for them. And if you've ever tried praying for those who persecute you, like, like I have, and I know some of you have, you know that it begins to work on your heart. Because you, you go to pray for them, and first of all, you don't want to. At least I don't want to. And, and, and then if, if you do it anyway, you, you don't know what to pray. <laughs> you know you're not supposed to pray, Lord, I pray that thou smitest them. <laughs> Although you're tempted to pray that. Um, 
And, and so maybe you just settle for praying, oh God, you know, help them to see the error of their ways. And I pray that they come back to me and they get on their knees and they say, I'm so sorry, I was so wrong. You know, kind of like that Kesha song, praying. You know, I, I hope you're somewhere. He, she, he's broken her heart, right? I hope you're somewhere praying. I hope your soul is changing. I hope you find your peace falling on your knees praying. Right? We just want them to change. But, but then as we pray, we, we realize, or at least I realize, that, that that prayer is really about me wanting the satisfaction of, of uh, them having a spiritual awakening so, so that they admit that they're wrong and I'm right. And uh, that they're coming to me humbly and they're begging for forgiveness. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I could forgive you. But, but I'm, when I realize that and what my motives are, I realize I'm still not sure how I should be praying for them. Because that doesn't seem right. It seems pretty self-serving, actually, when I stop and think about it. And, and so then I realize I, what I should really pray for is that God blesses them. But, but I don't want to pray that. <laughs> I don't want good stuff. I don't want them to be rewarded. And so I have to confess to God that, that in my heart, I don't want them really to be blessed. God, because that would just be letting them get off the hook with, with what they did. But, but that's where God it continues to go to work on my heart. And little by little, I, I force myself to pray that they'd be blessed and that God would, would give them what's good. And as I do, and as God does that heart work, over time it becomes a little easier for me to ask God to do this. And then a little easier still. And it's part of the process of me coming to forgive them and to let go. And leaving justice and vengeance in God's hands to do what God wants to do. But realizing that I'm not really that different from the people I'm praying for. In some ways, maybe they're not such an enemy after all. And, and, and sometimes I realize maybe, maybe I've got something I did and I need to go apologize to them. It was partly my fault too. Or, or maybe not, but, but still my heart is growing soft to them. And so what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, begins to come true. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy we stand by their side, and we plead for them to God. As we pray, God expands our hearts. Which is what Jesus is asking us to do here. To, to let Jesus stretch and expand our hearts until our hearts look more like God's heart. Who shines the sun and sends the rain on the good and on the evil on the righteous, and on the wicked. Because anyone, Jesus says, can love those who love them and greet their own people. Even tax collectors and Gentiles do that. But God wants to expand our love, the, the love of Jesus' followers, until it is so big that it even includes our enemies. Then, he says, we will be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Then we will become perfect, complete, whole, mature, as our Father in heaven is. And with that, we conclude the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we prepare our hearts for Advent, for the coming of Christ, 
who comes to love his enemies, even us. As we close, let's, let's take time to remember the, how Jesus modeled this for us and what he asks, how he modeled what he asks of us here. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were enemies, while we didn't know God, while we didn't have God's heart, while we were still somewhat selfish and self-focused, God gave his life for us in the person of Jesus, God the Son, to reconcile us to himself, to, to love and to offer forgiveness to the ones who were against him. In an incredible act of, of selfless, sacrificial love, given indiscriminately, offered to all, even to those who least deserve it. Those who had done the most to hurt God and, and God's plans for this world. I mean, think of the person you have the hardest time loving. The person who's done the most to hurt you or, or those you love. Or the kind of people you find it hardest to love. And remember that God welcomes them with open arms to come back to him. God loves them. God wants to be reconciled to them. God gave his son. God gave his most precious thing. God gave himself for those people. And God wants to do the same for you and for me. Many of us here have, have discovered this, this amazing love. We've We've tasted the forgiveness and the reconciliation. We've, we've experienced the heavens being opened to us and, and we've been welcomed into the divine family with open arms and it's changed our lives. And if you haven't experienced that yet, Jesus is offering that welcome to you. He's, he's offering to reconcile you to God by loving you, by forgiving you, by washing aside all that stands between you and God. Your regrets, your unworthiness, the, the stuff you're ashamed of, your failures and shortcomings. Washed away so that you can enjoy God's love and begin a new chapter. All you have to do is, is you have to ask Jesus to do this for you. And then you have to follow him wherever he leads you. Trust him. Walk with him. And if you'd like to begin that journey or you'd like to renew it or to take the next step on it, um, just tell Jesus that you want to do that as we pray now. Let's pray. You can ask Jesus um, to help you open your heart to him and, and to receive his forgiveness, his reconciling love. God, as we work our way through Advent, lighting a candle each week, counting the weeks, till we remember the coming of your son, we're reminded of your incredible love. And God, I, I pray especially for the people who are only getting to know Jesus for the first time and have not yet taken that step of saying, Jesus, I, I want you to forgive me. I have done things which are wrong. I've wandered far from God. My heart isn't as big as God wants. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you accept me 
wash me clean, and give me a new beginning. And so, God, we pray that along with those who want to pray that prayer this morning. Amen. And, of course, the official um, outward act that Jesus has given us to solidify a prayer like that is, is the act of baptism. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about how to take that step. Meanwhile, for the rest of us, I want to I pray for the rest of us, too, um, that God's heart would become our heart. God, we just pray that you would make our hearts wider and bigger, that you would make our heart wide enough to include and embrace even our enemies. That's a miracle you have to do, Jesus, but we want to be willing to let you do that miracle in our hearts to do our part. Amen.